welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. As Tone mentioned, we are in the midst of a series called Dead Man Walking. And I certainly have really, really enjoyed what's been shared so far by both Tone and Says. And for those of you that uh, don't know really what the series is about, it's basically we're looking at the lead up to the resurrection, or sorry, to the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, as recorded by John, okay, one of Jesus' disciples. And so, so far, uh, last week, Tone began the series with a, with a, a message called Jesus Honoured, in which we looked at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of Jesus. Says then looked last Sunday night at a message which he'd entitled um, Jesus Surrendered, looked at some of the attitudes that Jesus adopted that are, really serve as a model for us as we're laying down our lives for Christ. And Tone this morning then looked at uh, Jesus Arrested, a great message about Jesus in the garden and, and the things that took place there. And he concluded by just reading the scripture where Jesus, having been arrested, was taken to the high priest Annas and then through to the high priest Caiaphas. The reason there are two high priests, there's normally only one, but basically the Romans were appointing them. And so Annas had been high priest, um, and then he'd been disappointed, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, had been appointed. Um, but because the, traditionally the high priest was a, a, la- a lifelong role, so they both were called high priest. But basically what had happened was that um, in, the, in the midst of this, this, uh, this scam, really, it was, it was a sham, it was a setup. it wasn't a real trial. Okay, but they were out for Jesus. They went in the middle of the night to arrest him because if they hadn't have gone in the middle of the night, they might have had some trouble with those that were supporters of Jesus. And there were many of them in Jerusalem at the time. So they've arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. They've taken him straight down to the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council. And they've, they've brought in all these false witnesses and tried to get them to testify against Jesus. But none of them could really agree on a story. So that wasn't working. And finally, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and he says, tell us. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus just says these simple words, Yes, it is as you say, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. At that, Caiaphas, his blood is boiling. He starts tearing his clothes. He goes, We've heard enough. We accuse this man of blasphemy. What do you say? And the whole council says, Let's kill this man. He He is worthy of death. It's interesting at that point, really, when you think about it, because it's a trial. And all they got Jesus to do was to admit to who he was. You'd think if it was a true trial, then go on to prove whether he was or wasn't the Messiah. You'd think you'd call witnesses in and, okay, what would we expect a Messiah to look like? What might a person who's claiming to God be able to possibly do? And, you know, you would think you'd get people in. And on the basis of that, you'd say, well, yes, it seems like, you know, the testimony versus the evidence that, yes, he is or no, he isn't the Messiah. They didn't do that. They just waited for him to claim to be the Messiah. They accused him of blasphemy, which is basically just putting himself on the same level with God. And that's enough. We're going to kill this guy. And so then they took him down to Pilate because... Um, although they'd made that decision, and according to Jewish law, uh, the Old Testament law, certainly a person who claimed to be God was worthy of death. Um, in Jewish culture, they would have been stoned to death, but the Jews didn't have that right because they were um, under Roman rule. And so they needed, they needed the Roman governor of the day, a guy called Pontius Pilate, to ratify their decision to execute Jesus. Okay, So basically, they head down to Pilate, and I'm just going to pick up the story Um, In John chapter 18, uh, reading from verse 28 through to 40, it says, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. 
By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, I don't know about you, whenever I read that, it's just like, what? This is like totally weird. Here's these guys that just had a scam of a trial, a sham of a trial. They have just accused an innocent man of a crime, and they've basically, you know, they're all, he's all but dead. And they're worried about not entering some Gentile's house in case they become unclean. Like, seriously, they've got blood on their hands. Like, they're lying, cheating, stealing, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they're worried about entering a guy's house so they can eat the Passover. It's like the ultimate hypocrisy. Not to mention the rudeness of these guys. I mean, they've rocked up to the, the governor, the, the, the um, Roman governor over Judea. And they've rocked up there first thing in the morning. The sun's probably just creeping over the hills. And they won't go into his house. They demand he comes outside and speak to them. I mean, it's the height of rudeness, really. So Pilate comes out and he asks, What charges are you bringing against this man? And again, their response is interesting. It says, If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And I think again, they were just expecting that Pilate wouldn't even ask that question. They just want him to rubber stamp their decision. But Pilate, shock horror, actually wants to see justice done. And so he says, Well, what's the charge? And of course, they're just umming and ahhing, oh, well, you know. So he says, uh, so Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And I was, this is a religious matter. You deal with your religious matters yourself. And they said, but we have no right to execute anyone. Again, mine's totally made up, but the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken would be, oh, sorry, indicating the type of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight <clears throat> excuse me, to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now... My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With that, he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. It seems that Pilate is unconvinced by the validity of the, the accusations brought against Jesus. I don't know about you, but there's probably two people in this world I wouldn't want to be born as. One would probably obviously be Judas, and the other one would be Pilate. I mean, talk about between a rock and a hard place. Talk about the meat in the sandwich. I mean, here he is. He's a Roman governor. He's overseeing a, 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 a zealous, dogmatic people who are convinced that theirs is the right way. They are rebellious at every turn. He's had some struggles with these people already. And the trouble is, he, he went there, I'm sure, with good intentions to sort of climb up the, the political ladder and thought Jerusalem or Judea was probably his shot at success and stardom and able to go back to Rome as a hero. And so he began to stamp his authority in Jerusalem and Judea 
The trouble is, he got to the point where he ended up causing more harm than good. At one point, he'd put shields through Jerusalem, uh, sorry, in the temple, and the Jews had reacted so violently. And after five days standoff, he was going to send the guys in to kill the Jews, and then he realised they were actually willing to die. And he thought, ah. Oh. Hmm, they were supposed to back down before now, so he couldn't do that. Another time things did get out of hand and he did kill people. And then he got a letter from Tiberius rebuking him severely because he's supposed to be there keeping the peace, not making war. And I think he was probably a man who was more comfortable with war, but he was now a governor and his role was to keep the peace. And so I want to have a look at this, this individual and his interaction with Jesus. Jesus, a man who's come as a condemned man, a prisoner, and... Pilate, a man who stands representing the Roman Empire, the power of the day. And I want to have a look at, and I want to ask you three questions based on the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And the first thing I want to ask you is whose ideas are you thinking? Whose ideas are you thinking? John chapter 28, verse 34, I've read it. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds with, is that your idea? You know, Pilate had no doubt heard all sorts of things about Jesus on the grapevine. Some were no doubt true. Some would have been tainted by people's opinions. Some possibly would have been exaggerated. Some possibly would have been downplayed. But there was all these things flying around, all these stories about Jesus, and Pilate had heard some of them. But it's unlikely that he'd really taken much time to process what was being said about Jesus. I mean, he was too busy governing. He was too busy doing his own thing. He was too busy worried about his career and how he was going to get back to Rome and how he was going to look after himself. And to him, Jesus would have just been another in a long line of revolutionaries, another in a long line of religious zealots or in prophets or would-be rulers or whatever. And he was just another person that Jesus was paid to keep in check. And so he probably hadn't really thought too much about who Jesus was. And so I think Jesus questioned back to him, is that your own idea is a good one and one that we should think about for ourselves. Because today we're living in a world where I know many, many, in fact, most people I know have heard of Jesus and therefore have a thought about Jesus, have an idea about Jesus. The trouble is that most people's thoughts or ideas are not their own. Their thoughts, their ideas are the thoughts and ideas of other people. They're just blindly parroting what they heard or what they read or what they saw or whatever it might be. And they haven't got their own ideas about who Jesus really is. You know, some people, you talk to them and they're not even aware that Jesus is a historical figure. They just just assume that he's a mythical figure. Other people may just think that he's a good moral teacher or a philosopher. Other people would think perhaps that he's a, a prophet. Other people might think that he was a revolutionary a troublemaker, a political figure. There's all sorts of things and ideas floating around about who Jesus was. Some might have even thought that he had some sort of spiritual power or that maybe he tapped into the untapped potential of the mind and was able to influence people and heal them through that means. There's all sorts of ideas and opinions floating around about who Jesus is. But are they our ideas? Are they ideas that we've, or conclusions that we've drawn for ourselves, or are we just taking on board our parents' thoughts, or our friends' thoughts, or what so-and-so on TV said, or what so-and-so in the paper wrote about? That's the problem. Well, there is a problem with just blindly absorbing other people's ideas, is that they can be wrong. And if we take on the ideas of somebody who is wrong, well, then by default, we become wrong. And I think we owe it to ourselves 
to be smarter than that. Ignorance regarding Jesus was and is widespread. Don't become a victim of somebody else's biases or somebody else's laziness or somebody else's issues or somebody else's fears or worries or cynicism or skepticism or doubts or whatever it might be. Don't let them put you off. I mean, you might have some of those things yourselves, but you owe it to yourself to discover who Jesus is. You owe it to yourself to get past your biases. You owe it to yourself to get past your fears. You owe it to yourself even to get past your laziness, dare I say it. Because most people just couldn't be bothered. I mean, there's a wealth of information about Jesus. I mean, we are living in the information age. I mean, you can probably find out more about Jesus on your iPhone in the next five minutes than than people have been able to find after a a lifetime of study in centuries gone by. There's so much information about Jesus today. And we owe it to ourselves. It's of vital importance. You know, if, um, if things about Jesus are not true, you know, if, uh, sorry, if the reality of the, the claims of Jesus are not true or if his claims are not true, what does it matter? But do you even know what he claimed? If the things that he did didn't happen, it's of no significance. But if the things that he did did happen, that makes Jesus a significant figure. And it adds some weight to that claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Whatever that is, you probably don't know. Well, some people don't know. Many of you would. But many people don't. They've got no idea. Because they just haven't asked the questions. And so if the claims that Jesus made about himself and the things that were written about his life are true, these things are not moderately important. This is not like who's going to win the grand final sort of importance. This is not like what sort of car am I going to get. You know, this, is, this is of vital importance. This will set the course of not just this life but our eternity depending on what we know about Jesus. It starts with knowing the truth about him. So that's my first question. Whose thoughts are you thinking? Your opinion, and, and again, this is not just for non-Christians. This is for Christians. Do you have a hope? Do you have a reason for the hope that lies within? Are we able to answer the questions of those that come to us with genuine, sincere questions? Are we able to bolster their faith? Are we able to at least point them in the right direction? Here's something that will be helpful. Here's some of the questions I asked. Here's some of the places I began to look for answers. Because if we can't help at that level, I think we're selling people short. We're selling ourselves short, but ultimately we're selling others short. And we are here for their benefit, not for our own. My second question is this, which kingdom are you prioritising? It's interesting, Pilate wanted to just move on by asking Jesus what had actually done, done wrong, and Jesus continued to direct the conversation back to this whole idea of kingship. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight from, uh, against, to prevent my arrest from the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. And much of Jesus' preaching centered on the importance of ordering our priorities around this reality of this other kingdom. This kingdom is not readily apparent to the naked eye, but is nonetheless a real kingdom. Pilate was aware of the Roman Empire, and that was a kingdom of sorts. And that was a very obvious kingdom. It was in people's face. There were Roman soldiers everywhere. There were people hanging on crosses as evidence of that kingdom. But Jesus came and brought evidence of another kingdom. 
And pretty much all that he did within his ministry was just, it was like this unseen kingdom just breaking in to this seen kingdom. When Jesus healed a sick person, it was the unseen kingdom breaking into the scene. When Jesus spoke a word of knowledge and spoke to the woman at the well about, it was the unseen kingdom, the knowledge that, that, that is common knowledge in the kingdom of heaven coming in and breaking in to this seen kingdom. When there were people that were spiritually oppressed and Jesus delivered them, again, it was the power and the authority of the unseen kingdom breaking in and having an impact on the seen kingdom. That's the reality we live in, folks. There are things that we do not see that are greater realities than all that we can see, touch, feel and taste right now. But they are hidden from our eyes. There's a wonderful story, not just a story, but a historical account of Elisha, a prophet, in the days of old when he, uh, surrounded by an enemy army and his, his, his servant, his, uh, his helper, is starting to fret a little bit about what's going on. And Elisha just prays a simple prayer to God. He says, God, open his eyes. And he looks around and he sees that the hills surrounding them are full of chariots of fire and angels, these angelic spiritual beings ready to just take out this army at at a moment's notice. I I couldn't remember this film. I remember seeing a film recently and it was one of those those fantastic type superhero type films. Um, But it, it had earth... And all surrounding Earth was just these, these alien ships just waiting. They were cloaked. You know, they were in the cloak of invisibility. They couldn't be seen, but they were there. And you know, what was sort of taking place on Earth was, was going to determine the fate of Earth in a sense. And I think, well, you know, if you start to think about aliens, it gets a little bit weird. But if you think about that in terms of a, the spiritual realities that surround us, I think it's a great picture. That there are forces that are beyond our our ability to comprehend right now. There are powers at work that make our greatest achievements on earth seem piddling and insignificant, ready to be unleashed, but God has a plan. It's not like God is, is um, trying to get some cohesion amongst his forces and, and trying to get, you know, get a vote, you know, get the numbers in the upper house or whatever. It's like God has a plan. And there's no ifs or buts about it. He will fulfill his plan. But the Bible tells that he is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so Jesus says, I've got a kingdom. It's not of this world. And I'm willing to be in this predicament right now because it's all part of my greater plan and purposes. I might look like an idiot now. I might look like a fool to you. I might not look like a king. I might just look like a prisoner at the moment. But the reality is my kingdom's not from this place. My kingdom is not of this origin. My kingdom is not of this nature. But again, harking back to the words that he said to Caiaphas, you will see me coming at the right hand of the Father. There's a time coming when all conflict, all sickness, all the things that Jesus confronted and dealt with on the planet while he was here in those few short years of his ministry, demonic harassment, patterns of addiction, Confusion, misunderstanding, personal shortcomings, disabilities, everything that you and I are battling with and and that those around us are battling with. Injustice. And even the very planet on which we stand will be swallowed up in a new kingdom in which Christ rules and reigns. 
For those who have listened to and yielded to Jesus' lordship, our deepest yearnings will be satisfied. We're going to take up residence in God's eternal kingdom. The Bible speaks of a new heaven, a new earth. Every last drop of frustration, of disappointment, of condemnation, of confusion will evaporate in the presence of this awesome and glorious God whom we serve. We will know without any hindrance at all the fullness of God's love. None of us know the fullness of God's love right now. It's kind of like, if you could put it in earthly terms, if I was an orphan, if I was, if I was lost on the other side of the planet and my father was looking for me and I was getting letters here and there and I was just getting a little bit of, an inf- a bit of information that he loved me, that's awesome. And that's kind of like, to some degree, what we live in now. We, are, we don't see fully. We don't understand fully. We have an, un- an inkling, really, just an inkling of the height, the breadth, the depth and the width of God's love for us. And man, that is awesome when you do understand that. But compared to what is yet to be revealed, when God comes in his kingdom. That's why Jesus was able to stand in that moment as a victim in many people's eyes. As one who'd been beaten and was yet to be abused and crucified. For the joy set before him. He knew what was coming and so he was able to endure. The disciples, likewise, all of them apart from John, went on and, and died a martyr's death. For the joy set before them. Paul said, I can't wait to put aside this earthly tent that I'm in because I'm looking for a, a dwelling place in heaven. All the, all the, you know, it's insignificant what is happening here compared to what's happening in this kingdom that God is calling us to. Likewise, you and I can endure whatever comes our way if we have an understanding that what lies ahead is far greater than whatever we might miss out on or have to pay right now. Small potatoes, I think it's Eugene Peterson says, what if thou light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Whatever you have to endure, whatever you have to put up with, whenever people don't get you, whenever it hurts a little bit, whenever it costs a little bit, suck it up, it's worth it. Which kingdom are you prioritizing? Where's your time? Where's your effort? Where's your energy going? Are you trying to build your own little kingdom? Or are you flogging for some, yourself for someone else's kingdom? It's foolishness. There's a, there's, certainly, there's a, you know, we need to take responsibility. And yes, we're called to work. And yes, we're, you know, there's things that we do in this world. But where's our priority? Where's our focus? What are we ultimately living for? So many people are so wrapped up in relationships or so wrapped up in business or so wrapped up in achievements or trying to get famous or trying to get whatever it might be. And there's very little room left for God. There's very little left over to invest in this kingdom that will not pass away. And I would hate to be looking back in eternity forward somewhere and saying, man, if only, if only I'd taken a little bit more time to reflect on the glory of this kingdom that is now here. And now I am in this, having missed out or in some way being my present diminished because I did not sow myself fully into all that God had for me. And the third question is this. What type of truth are you believing? What type of truth 
are you believing? So whose thoughts are you thinking? Which kingdom are you prioritizing? And what type of truth are you believing? You know, Pilate's head, you can, you can, you can, as you read the accounts of Jesus and Pilate, you can sense a quiet desperation. I mean, I don't think it's taken too much to, prior, to process Jesus and beforehand, but now Jesus is standing before him and he's no madman. He's not a wild-eyed lunatic. He's not, he's not a, a, a person who is uh, in any way um, sort of threatening per se, but he is. He's a person who's in total control. And like I said, even in the meeting with Pilate, it's, it's like Jesus has assumed control, even though he doesn't have the authority or the title. And then in the midst of it, we read another gospel that Pilate's wife comes in and says, look, just, just be careful. I've had a bad dream about this guy. You don't, want to, you don't want to mess with him. And so Pilate's just racking his brains. How do I, how do I, what do I do here? And so he says, you are a king then. And Jesus says, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And at this point, I feel a little bit sorry for Pilate because he says, what is truth? He sounds like a man to me who is weary. He sounds to me like a man who has been made cynical by political pressures. Again, I mentioned before, probably he was a general, probably he was a fighting man at some point. And, you know, that's easy. But now he's got to keep the peace. Now he's got to be politically correct. He can't just go in there and send in the troops and wipe. He's got to appease the Jews, and he doesn't believe in their cause. He doesn't believe in their God. I mean, what's so different about their gods to the Greek gods and to the other gods and the other places and the Roman God? You know, to him, it's all like this is just a pain in the neck for me. All this stuff, all this religion. Things weren't quite, weren't quite turning out as planned for him. Here he is. He's the victor. He's part of the Roman Empire. And he's bowing and scraping at six o'clock in the morning because some Jews has to go outside. And it's like, this isn't what I had in mind. What makes these guys think their God is so special? Why are these Jews so dogmatic? So what is truth? I mean, he's been surrounded all his life. He's been called to, his political life, he's been called to make judgments like this one. And he's heard all the excuses. He's heard all the stories, had all the lies coming this way. What is truth? Well, the fact is, truth is this. It's just the actual state of a matter. It's conformity with fact or reality. Yes, there's situational truth. Thing that is true for a moment, but not perhaps tomorrow. Facts change over time. And so what was true yesterday might not be true tomorrow. If we talk about our political system right now, you know, who's in power? Anna Bly. She was the Premier of Queensland. Now she's not. Okay, the truth with regards to the premier truth has changed. But there are behind situational truths and contextual truths and factual truths, there's what I like to call ultimate truth. And these are the things that do not change. These are the things that are forever the same. And these are the things that we need to understand. And these are the things that we need to put our, our effort and energy into discovering and living according to. Questions like, how do we get here? Does God exist? Has he revealed himself? How has he revealed himself? Why did he create us? Does he have expectations of us? Are those expectations attached to consequences? I.e., heaven or hell? 
depending on how we live here and what we do. In saying everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus is making an exclusive claim that flies in the face of the type of truth that we're called to believe in today. Because you know that much of what is called truth today is actually a lie. We're living in a politically correct, relativistic society where we're called upon to say every person's beliefs are equally valid. That is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about the exact opposite of that. According to those who are pushing an agenda of political correctness, it is wrong to say someone else is wrong. It is right to say that everybody is right. But can we all be right? We can all be wrong, but we can never ever all be right. Are those who believe in God saying the same thing as those who don't believe in God? Are those who are Christians saying the same thing as those who are Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Rastafarians or whatever else? Of course it's not. But we are living in a society where we're having shoved down our throats at our universities and in our newspapers and on our TV programs time and time and time again. You cannot say someone else is wrong in the name of tolerance. Tolerance is this. Tolerance says, I will accept what you believe. I will accept that you believe what you believe, but I don't have to agree with it and I don't have to like it, but I'm not going to kill you for it. That's tolerance. Not, I throw my brain out and we, whatever you want to do is okay. You can say there is no God, you can say there is a God, and somehow I've got to say, you are saying the same thing. There is such a thing as truth. We can all be wrong, but we can never all be right. And again, I think we owe it to ourselves to look at the type of truth we're believing, particularly if you're at uni right now. Because this stuff is being shoved down your throat, both you know, in your face and subtly, the whole time. Every empire, the Greeks, the Romans, and we're in this situation now. Where whenever our, uh, the Babylonians, you, know, you, you get to a point where you have got the peace, you've got the rule, but then how do you rule? And the way most people decide is we, we'll keep the peace by saying everyone is right. And it's the beginning of the end. Because when you say that everything is right, people think that actually, ultimately, it's like nothing is right. And society just implodes upon itself. Anything goes. Because being a murderer is as valid as being an upright moral citizen. Being a rapist is as good as being an upright moral citizen. Marrying a hundred women or a hundred blokes, and if you're a woman or a bloke, it's all the same. It doesn't matter anymore. It's the beginning of the end. So what type of truth are we believing? Are we believing true truth? Are we believing false truth? In other words, are we believing lies? We don't need to be rude and arrogant and and dismissive of people who believe things different to us. But again, I think we owe it to them to be able to put some doubts in their heads if they're believing stuff that is nonsense. Because it doesn't help ultimately. It's like gravity. You know, I can can say I do not believe in gravity. I do not believe in gravity. I do not believe in... craziness there's truth out there and the way we respond to truth determines whether we get hurt or not inertia is a truth 
If you don't wear your seatbelt, you have an accident, you're going to get hurt a lot more than if you acknowledge the truth and put a seatbelt on. And it's the same with spiritual truth. If we acknowledge spiritual realities, if we acknowledge, okay, I've got to make a choice, God or not God. They're my two choices. I owe it to myself to find out which one is true. And I think if you do some homework, you'll come down on the side of there is God. And then you owe it to yourself. So, okay, there's a whole lot of claims about God. Is it the billions of gods of, of Hinduism or Shintoism or whatever? Or is it more likely to be one God? And I think when you look at the definition of God, you can only have one God. The, the, the whole term God really implies something that is mutually exclusive. And so then you come back to, really, you've got Judaism, you've got Christianity, you've got Islam. Basically all come from the Bible. All talking about a monotheistic, yeah, monotheistic, one God, ultimately. And then you've got to make some choices again. Okay, which one is most likely to be true? Now, Christianity just builds on Judaism. I have no problem with accepting Judaism. It's a foundation for Christianity. But it supersedes, Christianity supersedes Judaism. So that's easy for me to make that decision. Islam comes 600 years later. After Jesus has spoken, what's saying, watch out for false prophets, and so on and so forth. Don't need to say any more about that. It's not too hard if you put some mental energy into this thing and ask God to lead and guide you. Pilate, like I said, he must have been freaking at that time. He's thinking, how the heck can I get out of this? Ah, I've got an idea. What I will do is I will appease them. I can condemn Jesus. And then there's a whole bunch of people out there that I know like Jesus. So I can then offer to release him. That way, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they get their moment in the sun because you know Jesus is a condemned man. But then the crowd, they get the release of Jesus and everyone will be happy. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way. He goes out there and they say, no, crucify him, kill him, release Barabbas. And in concluding, I just want to make this comment, really. If we walk away from thinking our own ideas, if we just take on board what everyone else says, and if we walk away from truth, ultimately we're going to call out or look to something that ultimately cannot save. The Jews called for Barabbas. Why? Because he was a revolutionary. He was a man of action. He did carry a sword. He was on, um, in jail for murder. They thought, here's a guy who can do something. This Jesus, he was a letdown. He's a pacifist. He's not going to get rid of the Romans, but Barabbas. We don't hear anything more about Barabbas after that. But those who had rejected Jesus had called for Barabbas in the hope that maybe he would set them free that maybe he would save them. And if we reject truth, and if we don't think, we're going to end up in the same sort of problem. If we don't prioritise God's kingdom, we will end up sowing our lives into and looking to other things for salvation, other things for meaning in life, other things for purpose, other things for help and support and everything else. And ultimately, none of those things can save us. None of those things can give us what we really need, either in this life or the life to come. 
This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.